0: Reading this morning of Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And please look on or listen along as I read God's Word, Romans chapter 9, chapter 4, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. Uh, We thank you that uh, your word continues to speak today. We praise you that uh, your word is like a sword that pierces us to the inmost being. And in uh, ironic fashion in killing us, it gives us life. And we ask you that you might, Holy Spirit, breathe new words of life, not only through the reading, but also now through the preaching as well of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have begun what is a new development in the course of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 21 through, uh, through 31 is His great statement of salvation, uh, paralleling chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, or verse 17, wherever you want to round that off. Uh, But having done that, he moves in chapter 4 to a consideration, as we saw last time, of salvation as it was found in the Old Testament. In other words, answering the question whether the salvation as he presented in those two mighty passages, in chapter 1 and chapter 3, is something new, or whether it was something that you might find in the Old Testament as well, justification by faith alone. And it is perfectly clear, Paul says, from Romans, uh, or in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, from the lives of Abraham and David, these two great Old Testament figures that salvation and blessing defined as God imputing righteousness apart from works, verse 6, This blessing found them not on the basis of their works, but solely by God's grace. Both Abraham, in other words, were justified by faith alone apart from works. Exactly in the same way as you and I. The blessing of the redemption which God wrought in Christ found even them in the Old Testament. The blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of an imputed righteousness, which Paul again states in verse 9. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, he was justified by faith. That's just a quotation. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That's a quotation of Genesis 15.6 once again. But it's just a statement which says he was justified by faith. But having answered the question, is this anything new? The answer being no. Justification by faith stretches all the way back to Abraham and frankly even before him. Apart from works. This leads Paul to ask two further questions, which we have seen is his method in Romans, his characteristic method, uh, to ask a question, to answer it, uh, and, and on and on he goes, to the point that we hope once every objection has been removed and every question has been answered, we might uh, we might climb the peak with him at the end of Romans chapter 8 in glory and a mighty assurance in God's redemption in Christ Jesus But the first question that he asks in verse 9 is, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? In other words, the question is, all right, Abraham was justified by faith, David was justified by faith, we grant that. Both men were circumcised, though, both men were Jews. And so the Jews might go that far with Paul, but they would want to limit it to the Jews only, only to the circumcised. Only they were justified by faith alone, certainly not the uncircumcised. Paul says, no, no. We need to wait, we need need to stop there and ask the question, what about the uncircumcised? He reminds them that Abraham, the righteousness that was accounted to him, came to him by faith only, leading to the second question, that's verse 9, verse 10. How was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And that will have an important bearing on answering the first question, whether uncircumcised people can be justified too. And so the issue here that he's dealing with is the relationship, and this is the title of the sermon, the relationship of circumcision to justification. Seeing that both were true of Abraham. He was both justified by faith, Genesis chapter 15, and two chapters later, he was given the sign of the covenant, Genesis chapter 17, as the head of a covenant, the covenant of grace. And one cannot deny the significance of either in the life of Abraham, either his justification, Genesis 15, or circumcision as a sign being given to him first in Genesis 17. Uh, not only in the life of Abraham, but also the life of his children, the subsequent life of his children. But the question which needs to be answered is the role of each in the life of Abraham. And uh, if, if you remember from our study many months ago in Genesis chapters 12 through 22, uh, the highlight of uh, of that whole episode, aside from the promises which God gives Abraham over and over again, is the way we are able to have a case study in the religious life of Abraham. And the thing that stands out most prominently is his faith, unquestionably. But faith isn't the only thing that was true of Abraham. He was also circumcised. And so he also becomes a case study in the role of circumcision and, and then taking those two ideas we're also able to see in the life of this one man the relationship of the two to one another. What is the r- relationship of circumcision to justification? That is a question which we are able to answer. And so we can divide the matter like this. The first thing Paul does is to define the relationship between Abraham's faith and his circumcision. And this is just as we saw in the prior verses. The question being how did they find the blessing? How did they find favor with God these Old Testament saints? The answer is the same way as you and I. By grace through faith. This equally the role of circumcision in their life as believers. Is something that scripture answers for us. Just as scripture answered the prior question. Well, let us agree that Abraham, like David, enjoyed the same blessing of forgiveness and justification as we saw in verses 6 through 8 leading up to verse 9 in the present text. Abraham was justified by faith. He says it again in verse 9. We say that he was, that faith was accounted to Abraham for, right, uh, for righteousness. This is a matter about which the Old Testament in Genesis is clear about. Abraham came into the blessing like David, of an imputed righteousness when he believed by God's grace. And so even though Psalm 32 came later, he might have sung it too. And certainly he would have in his own spirit and in his own way. But wait a second, Paul says, he knows he's speaking to Jews and he knows the objection would naturally arise. And, and, and just to, to make the point relevant, though I'll come back to this later in the sermon, we can say all the same things about baptism. So don't think this is just a first century question that needed to be answered and now it's settled and we can move on. Everything he says here about circumcision we can say about baptism. But the question they had is, what about circumcision? And it's a fair question. Wasn't circumcision an important point, not only in the life of Abraham, but in the establishment of this covenant of grace? And so we know the Jews grant that he was justified by faith. Let's suppose they've gone along with him this far in the argument from Genesis 15. But we also know from Genesis 17 that Abraham was also circumcised. And that God attached great importance to this. Both for him, but also to his children, his spiritual children. Who were to be circumcised along with him on that very day. Or was it eight days later? I can't remember. But at any rate... Uh, they were they were to be circumcised once God gave the command, but the tragedy of the Jews is that they began here. In the life of Abraham, they began in Genesis 17. They did not begin in Genesis 15. They were bad historians, you might say, bad students of the Bible. It's the tragedy of the Jews, at least in Paul's day, is that again and again, and we see this in Jesus' life as well, they miss the true import of their own scriptures. They began not with Genesis 15, as I say, but Genesis 17. They began with circumcision and they made that the crucial factor in their their religious life and in defining their relationship to Father Abraham and in defining their relationship to God. The great thing for the Jew was to be circumcised. It was actually what they boasted in. And they wanted others to be circumcised that they could boast in them too. That's what we saw in Galatians. This is what made one a Jew. This is what made one a true child of Abraham to whom the promise was made that he would be an heir of a multitude. But wait a second, Paul says, I am a Jew. I am circumcised. I have the same scriptures you do. And I can plainly read that Genesis 15 came first, not second. In fact, it came some 14 years before the events that we read in Genesis 17. And so as a matter of, Purely, uh, a purely historical matter, we know that justification takes the priority, both logically and temporally. In other words, from the standpoint of the question, how did he come into the blessing? Where did he find it? How did it come to him? It's obvious in the life of Abraham, as recorded in Genesis, that he came into the blessing of an, impu- of an imputed righteousness apart from circumcision. He came into that blessing while still uncircumcised. And realizing this simple historical point has a way of clarifying the relationship of these two things to one another in the life of Abraham and his children. Well, let me simplify the matter by putting it like this. We know that Abraham was, so to speak, the first man who was justified. Now, that isn't literally true, but it is true in the sense that he is the first man in Scripture, uh, or the first man whom Scripture says was justified. And so he was the first man who was justified in the Bible. The Bible pinpoints him or uses his life and his religious experience as a way of demonstrating the manner by which God justifies the ungodly, or the sinner, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And in that sense, he becomes the father of his spiritual children. The father in the sense of being the first. And his children are related to him by being like him. But Abraham was also the first man to be circumcised. And that is actually literally true. And so there can be no better person to settle the matter for us as to the precise purpose of each. Than Abraham and the relationship of these two things, since Abraham was justified and then Abraham was later circumcised and the simple fact of history let me say again is that Abraham found the blessing as an uncircumcised man righteousness was accounted to him and blessing found him not while circumcised but uncircumcised in answer to the question of verse 10 how was it reckoned while he was while he was circumcised or uncircumcised the answer is not while circumcised but but while uncircumcised. Now in a moment, we'll return to that, the importance of that point in clarifying what then the purpose was of circumcision. If in reality, it had nothing to do with this justification. He was justified as an uncircumcised man. What does that tell you? It tells you that you don't need to be circumcised in order to be justified. You can just look at Abraham and see that plain enough. It's plain as day. How did the Jews miss it? When they said later on, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. You see, they made they found Abraham's salvation in Genesis 17, not 15. But let me pause there and just notice again the importance of this question. Look again at verse 10. How then was it accounted? Or I think in the King James, and I like it a little better, how was it reckoned? And, and the it is the righteousness of Christ which was imputed to him as a believer. How did he come to be seen in the eyes of God as a righteous man, though he was ungodly and though he was without works? The righteousness of Christ was imputed to him. It was reckoned. How was it reckoned? Was it reckoned by faith or by circumcision? You see, it has a way of, just by asking that question and pinpointing it, it has a way of, of focusing the issue. And let us ask the question of Abraham and of ourselves. How is this righteousness reckoned? Do you realize, this is why I'm just pausing here, do you realize that everything hinges on this question? Everything in your religious life, everything in the religious life of Abraham and of Paul and of Luther. And that's why these men were contending for these things. That's why I'm contending for them and why you should contend for them. Luther realized that this was the crucial question. We know that chapter 3 verse 28 was Luther's theme verse in many ways. But we can also see Luther as the early monk asking this question of himself. How was it reckoned? How does a sinner, an ungodly man who has no works, who has no righteousness, how does he, how is he reckoned righteous in the sight of God? You see, he was engaged in the same battle. The Roman Catholic Church made it to depend upon the church and her ceremonies. They made it a matter of works. God will reckon you. He will count you to be righteous when you observe our ceremonies and when you perform the works which we prescribe. And I wonder if the Reformation ever would have happened if Luther had not asked this question over and over until he found his answer. How is it reckoned? It's a matter of his own personal experience, like Abraham. Is it reckoned, to use the language earlier on in Romans chapter 4, as a wages that are due? That's the Roman Catholic teaching. It's a matter of merit. Is it a matter of works? Or is it a matter, as Paul says, and as Luther later came to see, of pure grace, pure unmerited favor, something which God bestows and imputes upon the sinner, though he deserves the opposite? In other words, is it reckoned solely by faith in God's gracious promise, as it was in the life of Abraham? And let us realize... This is something that Romans chapter 4 underlines for us in our understanding of the gospel. Let us realize together the importance of the Old Testament in answering that question. Too often we try to, uh, to answer that question by going to Romans or by going to the gospels. But do you realize, Paul says, that God has been answering this question ever since the first pages of the Bible were written in the book of Genesis. It is a question that God has always been interested to answer. And one of the great uh, the great purposes of Romans chapter 4, uh, as with other portions of scripture, but certainly this chapter helps us to see the value of the whole of the Bible, and especially of the Old Testament, and settle these matters for us. If we know that even in the Old Testament, that God's God's manner of justifying men was by faith apart from works, then there can be no question that works have no place in the salvation of sinners now because they never did. I didn't need, Paul didn't need, the Jews didn't need to wait for Christ to come. Thank God he did come. But God had already answered this question, beloved, as far back as in Genesis. And when Christ came, all he did was to fill up the full measure of that teaching and to give us that blessing. But having established that, and seeing plainly that Abraham was justified by faith alone long before he was ever circumcised, that is, again, as one who was uncircumcised, Abraham was justified. Do you do you realize uh, the scandal this is to the Jew? You're effectively saying in that state, Abraham was actually a Gentile when he was justified. But having established that plainly from scripture, the question becomes, what is the purpose and the value of circumcision? Does it have any value at all? And the answer is, with respect to justification, it has no value. Zero. It is absolutely worthless. A man may be justified like Abraham apart from this ceremony. In fact, apart from any ceremony at all. He can be justified, just like Abraham, simply in the presence of God. By looking to the stars of the heavens and wondering at what God is doing. And considering the promise. And so there I just said it. Absolutely worthless. Worthless but only with respect to the sinner's justification. But if God did not give circumcision for righteousness and salvation, which the Jews were claiming in the Old Testament days and in Paul's day, why then, why then did he give it? And here Paul gives an answer which clarifies the nature of all the sacraments. This is why this teaching is so relevant today. We have here uh, the clearest statement in all of the Bible of Paul's sacramental theology. There is, no, uh, there is no better statement than what we find in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. There is Paul's sacramental theology. And he tells us that even though Paul's, or, or excuse me, Abraham, And his children, even though for them circumcision as a sacrament did not justify. That at the same time, this consideration did not empty it of its religious significance. There was indeed a very important reason that God gave circumcision to Abraham and his children. And that is a reason we ought to recognize. And those reasons are seen, as Paul says, in verse 11, in the way that circumcision was a sign and a seal of his justification. Let me read it again. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. A sign and a seal of his justification, a sign and a seal of the righteousness which he came to possess the moment he believed. Now this is obvious in the fact, or uh, yeah, in the fact that it came later. It could not be the blessing of justification, nor could it confer the blessing of justification, circumcision that is, because Abraham, when he was circumcised, was already justified. And so its relationship to justification must be something different. Circumcision is not the instrument. Faith is. As soon as a man comes to have faith, he's justified. That was true of the saints in the Old Covenant. But instead of conferring the blessing instrumentally, as faith does, Paul says it signified and sealed the blessing. It came to him, Paul says, as a sign and a seal of the righteousness he already possessed when he believed. So it was a sign a visible sign of the blessing on the one hand, but more importantly, with respect to the, uh, to the sacraments, it functioned as a seal. Which means it authenticated, it assured, it guaranteed the thing signified to Abraham. And my favorite illustration of this, a sign and especially of a seal, is a wedding ring. In one sense you could say it's a sign. It symbolizes the bond of marriage. The fact that I'm wearing a wedding ring. Indicates or it signifies as a sign. That I am a married man. But the ring isn't marriage. Nor does the ring confer the blessing of marriage upon me. I could take my ring off. In fact I'll do it now. And I'm still married. But the fact of the ring. Signifies both to me and to the wife, and to the witnesses, and to God, that I am married. But it does more. It isn't just a sign, it's also a seal. In the act of the marriage ceremony, of placing the ring upon the finger, the bond of marriage and the promises made there are sealed. They are guaranteed, they are assured. Just as surely as I am placing this ring upon your finger, and it will stay there. I promise to you to forsake all others for you. The presence of the ring testifies as a seal to the reality of this lifelong commitment. And circumcision, as with all the sacraments, functioned in just the same way. It did not confer the blessing of an imputed righteousness, but it was a sign that symbolized it. And at the same time, the fact that this outward sign uh, the the fact that this uh outward sign uh came upon Abraham's flesh served as a pledge and as a seal. Of Abraham's justification that God will surely justify the one who has faith. But just like the ring, which a man may take off and still be married, a man, Paul says, may be uncircumcised and still be saved. He doesn't need the sign and the seal. It helps him, but it is not absolutely necessary. The sign and the seal only point to the reality They prove and authenticate it. That is their religious significance, but they do not confer the reality or the blessing. But the same cannot be said of faith. You remember, that is the contrast. The sacraments and faith, circumcision and faith. A man cannot be devoid of faith and still be saved. He cannot lack faith and still be justified, though he might lack circumcision. And so obviously the priority... Must be placed upon faith. Not on circumcision. And not upon the sacraments. Again the crucial crucial question in verse 10. How was it reckoned? That is the question. And the answer is. Not by circumcision. Not by the sacraments. But by faith alone. A man is justified by faith alone. Apart from works of the law. Again and again that is the contention of Romans. And so the relation of the two. Might be defined like this. Logically. I'm, I'm emphasizing this word logically for a reason. Logically, circumcision comes after justification and faith, as with all the uh, all the sacraments. Temporally, it may come before. In the case of Abraham, it came after. But uh, to be fair, in the case of his children, those who had saving faith, it would have come after, wouldn't it? But even for them, it sustained the same relationship. Those who were circumcised first and then believed. The real priority in salvation for them was not upon their circumcision. It was upon their faith. Only then, when they exercised saving faith, did it signify anything to them. And only then did it seal to them the righteousness which they came to possess when they believed. In other words, it functioned for them as it did for Abraham. As a seal, Paul says, of the righteousness of the faith which they had. Now, the next thing that Paul says is that this clarifies the relationship between Abraham and his children. That he might, I'm still in verse 11, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. Also, the fact that Abraham was justified as an uncircumcised man defines his relationship to his true spiritual seed. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith in order to prove that he was the father of the uncircumcised and the circumcised. That's verse 12, by the way. Again, you can imagine the scandal that this was to the Jew. The hardest thing for them to accept that Paul was saying, actually, that the children of Abraham were the, were, were, were the uncircumcised Gentiles who had a faith like his. Not just the circumcised, naturally uh, naturally descended children of Abraham, but the uncircumcised as well. And yet, if, again, if you simply read the scriptures, it's so plain and obvious. The promise came to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not one. A promise that he believed and thus was justified while he was still uncircumcised. And this obviously has relevance to those who are, who are uncircumcised like him. In other words, again, this not only defines the relationship between circumcision and faith, but it defines the relationship of Abraham and his children. Who are his true children? If Abraham was justified as an uncircumcised man, if lacking circumcision was no barrier to his being justified, then neither, it, neither can it be for us. And so the true child of Abraham, his true spiritual seed, is simply the one who has faith like father Abraham, irrespective of his circumcision. It is nothing, it, it avails nothing with respect to this question, who are his children. It is one, or he is one, his true child is one, who considers the promise and accepts it as Abraham his father did. And his justification will come as surely and naturally as it did for Abraham. Yes, Paul says, righteousness will be imputed to them also. That's the end of verse 11. Not just as soon as they receive the sacrament, but just as soon as they believe like Abraham. Even if they aren't circumcised, even if they never are. In promising to Abraham a spiritual seed in Genesis 15, that is what the Lord was pointing to. A multitude of spiritual children who shared in the same blessing by the same means, namely by faith. But let us not go too far with this, Paul says in verse 12. You notice uh, the characteristic balance in Paul. He has no interest in excluding when he says this, the natural seed of Abraham, those who were circumcised. He isn't saying that circumcision is a barrier to justification any more than he's saying that uncircumcision is. He's saying that even they might be Abraham's children. So long as they have faith too. He is the father of the circumcised. He is the father of the uncircumcised. To all who have a faith like his. The point is, faith is what determines one's relationship to God, faith is what tells you whether a man is justified. Faith is what determines our relationship to Father Abraham. This is something that we will go on to consider in greater detail next time in verses 13 through 17. But for now, I take the point is established. If Abraham was justified by faith while still uncircumcised, this really determines everything that follows. It determines who can be justified. Answer, even the uncircumcised. It determines who are his true true children, circumcised and uncircumcised alike, so long as they have faith. And it also determines the true significance of circumcision in its relationship to faith as a sign and as a seal. That is uh, the method of Paul's argument. But let me close here by pointing to the implications and the significance of this for the Christian life, since we too have sacraments, and since we too have an interest in being, well, related to Abraham as his true spiritual children. The question which we have as the first century Christians had is, how might we come into this blessing as well? If we want to be justified as Abraham was, that is, if we want to be counted as as his true spiritual seed, we need to consider him in Genesis 15, not Genesis 17. And there we will discover once more that the real issue that determines man standing before God is faith and nothing else. And that this becomes, as we will later see in in the latter part of Romans chapter 4, the central concern of the Christian life, just as it was in the life of Abraham. Faith at the inception of the Christian life when the believer is justified, but also as something that encompasses the whole of the Christian life. For we are ever confronted with God's word and we are ever called to believe it so that we walk by faith and not by sight just like Father Abraham we are ever making our lives and our salvation and everything that we have and hope to be to depend upon the word of God faith is the central issue how could anyone read the Abrahamic narrative and miss that crucial point how could anyone read it and make the sacrament the great thing and yet that's what the Jews did but we also need, as a second point, to have a proper sacramental theology, since this is where the Jews went uh, wrong, and this is where the Roman Catholics have gone wrong, and this is where countless Protestants have gone wrong. And the reason this is so important is not because it, it, is, it is so crucial that we understand just exactly what is happening at the Lord's table or when someone is baptized. That is not why it is so crucial. The reason it is so crucial is because when you misunderstand the sacraments, invariably what you get wrong is the gospel. That's what Paul is proving here. An improper view of circumcision, the sign of the Old Covenant, led to a distorted view of the gospel. The same is true today, beloved. And it is absolutely incumbent upon us that we have a proper sacramental theology, just as the Reformers did in our defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let me consider two of the common errors. The first, uh, which is very common in the low-brow, low-church evangelicalism today, is to disregard the sacraments altogether. In fact, not even to say the word. It's an ordinance you'll hear. Let us avoid the error of the Jews by avoiding the sacraments. That is, in essence, how the argument goes. But again, we can look to the life of Abraham and ask, is that what he did? Did he avoid the error by avoiding the sacrament? Did he find it necessary to warn off his children from the error of sacerdotalism? And we know from the Old Testament that this was an error they were prone to. I've just said it for the whole sermon. They placed too much importance in circumcision. Did Abraham find it necessary to warn them off that by saying, don't be circumcised? Obviously not. For if we have a faith like his, We will be in no danger of confusing the issues. We will never look to the sign to save us. For we will already know that we possess what the sign signifies, like Abraham did. But yet on the other hand, there are still those, even in the Reformed Church today, who in an effort to to restore a high view of the sacraments in response to the low brow and the low church... To restore a high place of the sacraments in the life of the church attached too much importance to the sacraments. You might have noticed this, for instance, a while ago in the Federal Vision. Well, certainly, I have tried in this church to instill uh, in, in in all of you a sense of the importance of the sacraments of worship. Uh, in worship, I mean. We've increased the frequency of the Lord's Supper, for instance. And yes, we baptize infants, But let us be careful not to attach too much significance to these things. Neither the Lord's Table or the Sacrament of Baptism are saving blessings. Neither are instrumental in salvation. Neither of them confer the blessings of justification. They merely signify and seal those blessings to the one who has faith. That is a proper and biblical sacramental theology. And so I'll say it again. They do not save. They merely signify and seal the blessings of justification and salvation to the one who has faith. They function, in other words, for us exactly as they did for Abraham and his children. And the sign of the covenant, baptism in this case, may come before or after faith, as in the case of Abraham and his children. Let us not attach, as our confession says, too much importance to the time of its administration, whether it becomes, whether it comes before or after faith. For as I said in the case of those circumcised after Abraham his children, the sacrament came first. And yet its relationship to faith was exactly the same. It was a sign and a seal of the righteousness they had by faith. But we see in the way this era lives on even today. How difficult it is to suppress the sinful inclination in the hearts of men. We always want to attach too much importance to the outward. That was the characteristic sin of the Jews. It remains the characteristic sin of man today. The outward. Whether it be church membership. Or our place in a Christian family. Or in the sacraments. But if Abraham himself could be saved without any of those outward things. Then that ought to settle the matter once for all. Abraham was saved. He was justified by faith like his. Faith in what? Faith in the promise. Faith in the coming seed. The Messiah. Jesus. Abraham saw his day and was glad. He looked forward to the coming of the Redeemer. He looked to his stripes on the cross. He considered his perfect life. He saw that righteousness from afar that might really justify him. And in believing that, his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And so long as we, like him, make our faith to depend upon that promise and not on anything else, then we are his children and we will share in the same blessings. Righteousness, again, verse 11, will be imputed to us as well along with him. And if any outward blessing is added to that, whether it is a Christian family or Christian sacraments, let us see what Abraham did. Merely that by these things God was sealing the very promises to us that we believed and by which faith we were justified like him. Amen. And let us come to the table together.